We are now back in the Gospel of John, and we're in chapter 8. And this is Jesus, of course, in his continuing dialogue with the officers of the court. And now he's in the temple area, talking to the scribes and the Pharisees, and listen to the words of Jesus. Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, You are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, Even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I came from and where I am going. But you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Not even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I am the Father who sent me. In your law it is written that the testimony of two men is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, where is your father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. So he said to them again, I am going away, and you will seek me, but you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, will he kill himself since he says, where I'm going, you cannot come? He said to them, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins unless you believe that I am He. You, He, you will die in your sins. So they said to Him, Who are you? Jesus said to them, Just what I have been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but... He who sent me is true, and I declare to the world that I have heard from him. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I'll always do the things that are pleasing to him. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. The word of the Lord. And you may be seated. The title for the sermon this morning comes from the passage of Scripture there in verse 25, where the officers the scribes and the Pharisees of the temple, said to Jesus, Who are you? And then Jesus begins, I think, with a note of exasperation to patiently tell them once again who he is. Now, we need to back up a little bit. Last Sunday we were at the Ascension because it was Ascension Sunday and we talked about Christ's Ascension. So now we need to kind of roll back in time a little bit to earlier in the ministry of Christ where he is at the Feast of Tabernacles still. The Feast of Tabernacles was that autumn feast that celebrated and remembered the wilderness wanderings. And there are three things that were very significant about life in the wilderness for Israel. One 
was that God fed them with manna. And Jesus has already fed the 5,000 with the loaves and the fishes, and He's already given the discourse how He is the true manna from heaven. I am the bread of life. Another significant thing about the wilderness wandering was the water. The water from the rock. The water that God gave them that poured forth from a rock that sustained them during two very critical periods in their wilderness wandering. And of course, we had the discourse where Jesus stood on the last great day of the Feast of Tabernacles and held forth saying, Come, everyone that thirsts, come to me, and I will give him the water of life. And of course, Paul teaches us that in the wilderness, that rock was Christ. And from him flowed the Holy Spirit, who's the water of life. And so we've, we've seen that. We talked about the water celebration at the Feast of Tabernacles, where they would go down to the pool of Siloam and bring the water, the pitcher of water back, and offer the drink offering to the Lord, pour it upon the fire, create the huge steam that would represent the intercession and the presence of God. And you, you know that ceremony. Well, there was another ceremony. There was a third feature of the wilderness wandering, and that was the pillar of fire that hovered over the people. It appeared as a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And it hovered over the tabernacle and over the encampment and over the wilderness wanderings, the time the people were in the wilderness. And of course, we know that pillar of fire was the very presence of God. In fact, it was not only the manifestation of God in their midst, but it was also the very thing that protected them in the wilderness. The, the, the cold of the wilderness night was abated by the warmth of the fire hovering over the camp. And then during the day, the scorching heat of the day was mitigated by the cover of the cloud over them by day. The presence of God protected them from the extremities of the wilderness wandering. And so something was very, very important about that pillar of fire. And so there was in the Feast of Tabernacles a light ceremony, a fire ceremony. What they would do was they would take four huge lampstands, four candelabras with huge bowls on the top of it filled with the oil and they would put a floating wick in the bowl and it would float around and it would flame up and would light up the court. And the tradition tells us that this would take place in the court of the women. Now you remember the temple set up with the Holy of Holies, the temple, the holy place, and then the the court for the priest, and then the court for the Levites, and then the court for the men, and the court for the Gentiles, and then the huge court, the court of the Gentiles, there was also a court for the women. And it was in the women's court is where Jesus is now teaching. We know that also because it says this took place in the treasury as he taught in the temple. It was in the tre- it was in the women women's court that the treasury was. And, and you remember there that what that was was 13 shafars or, or horns, ram's horns, that were put over what we would consider today a lockbox or a safe. And the people would go by and throw the coins in the open end of the shafar, and then it would go down the coins, the treasury would receive them, and it would be there. You remember one time Jesus sat there and watched people do that, and He saw a woman throw in a widow's mite. This is where Jesus is on this, this occasion 
teaching them. He's in the women's court. And it was in the women's court that they would light these four huge torches. And then the men would wrap themselves in a special garment and they would take a smaller torch and they would dance all night long. That's how we know Jesus wasn't a Baptist. Because he was there dancing with all these people. Seriously. That was, that was a huge celebration. A wonderful spectacle that they would have these, these huge torches and the women and the men together in the court would dance. And some said they would dance all night long for a few nights during the festival. Especially at the beginning of the festival. So Jesus, can you see the context now? He's at the Feast of the Tabernacles. He's already talked about the manna. He's, he's talked about the water. And now he's going to speak of the light. I am the light of the world. John uses this theme all the way through, and I'm not going to spend much time on it today because next chapter, chapter 9, we'll find that Jesus heals a blind man. A man in his darkness all of his life. God heals, Jesus heals him and brings light to his soul and light to his eyes and light to his body. John said in the very beginning that Jesus was the light that comes into the world that lights everybody. In other words, Jesus is seen as the light and the light of life. He is the effulgence of the glory of God, the radiance of the glory of God as we had in our Hebrews confession a few moments ago. He is the light of the world. God is depicted as light. In fact, it's an interesting thing that's given in the prophets that God is so bright in His brilliance that it is light that enshrouds Him. Think of that. The light that we see is light, the manifestation of the glory of God from the sun and the moon and the stars. And the light that we know ourselves is simply the the shroud, it's the curtain, it's the covering that God uses to hide His true brilliance. He is enshrouded in light. All along, the very first days of the creation of God, light has been important. And light is, is... Self-attesting. You don't prove the light. The light shines. It shines of itself. And it gives us then the capacity to see everything else. Everything else can be there, but if it's pitch black, you will not see it. You will not perceive it with the eye. Light is absolutely necessary, not only physically for us to survive, but spiritually. And everything emanates and grows from the light. Photosynthesis, our very nature itself, is dependent upon the light. Our very weather patterns are dependent upon the heat of the sun and and the radiation and all the things, evaporation and all that takes place in that. And so I think you're familiar with that particular metaphor enough to know that when the claim is made by Jesus that I am the light of the world, we have not only Him saying He is God, that He is the radiance of God's glory, but also we have Him making an acclaim for being true and self-evident. Bear that in mind, self-evident. Light is self-attesting, self-witnessing. When there's light, you just know it. You don't have to prove the light. And Jesus now, this is His second of several I am sayings 
And it's been noted, we don't have time to mark them all, but there's about five places in here where Jesus says, I am. Now, later on in the chapter and into the next chapter, he's going to really make an emphasis of that because he's going to talk about Abraham and he's going to talk about uh, uh, Moses and the great I am sayings of Jesus really come to show that he is divine because that's the very essence of the introduction of the divine to Moses. When God introduced himself and presented himself to Moses in the wilderness of Midian, he did it in terms of a burning, flaming fire. And he did it in terms of a conversation wherein he revealed himself to be I am. When People want to know who you are, Moses said. Who can I say you are? He said, say that I am who I am. I exist. I necessarily exist. It is self-evidencing that I exist. Now, we know a little bit about the argumentation that was taken here because it's getting a little more tense because we have these little references of no one arrested him. His hour had not yet come. No one laid hands on him yet. They plotted to kill him. We've already seen these things in the life and the ministry of Christ, how that these temple authorities are getting more and more fed up with Jesus, more and more intimidated, and more and more uh, resentment and hostility is manifesting itself toward Christ. But here we have, in the very midst, I think that Jesus was about to embark upon a beautiful discourse on being the light of the world. They only have one verse. He doesn't spell that out anymore. It's spelled out in other places in the Gospel of John, the words of Jesus, but not here. Because something has happened. In order to do that, let me just back you up to chapter 7, where we, Jesus has just given the, the uh, discourse on the water of life, or told him he, about the water of life. And, and notice what happens. Let me read this. It's hard to understand the conversation in this particular passage without knowing this little uh, piece of... Uh, of the, of the plot. The officers then, these are the men that had been sent out to sort of monitor what Jesus was doing. The officers then came to the chief priest and Pharisees and said to them, why did you not bring him? And they said, no one ever spoke like this man. And then the Pharisees answered, says, have you been deceived? Have any of the authorities of the Pharisees believed in him? In other words, what do you mean no one speaks like he does? We sent you out to spy on him. We sent you out to get some evidence against him. We sent you out to, to apprehend him and, and, and to bring him in. Where is he? We have never heard anyone's preach and speak like this. And they said, what's wrong with you? Are you deceived? Do you see any of us, the officers of the temple, do you see any of us believing in him? Shouldn't that be evidence that he is not who he says he is and, and, and you need to do what we've ordered you to do? And notice what happens here. But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. In other words, they said this mob, this, this crowd of people that, that are listening to Jesus, that are seeing his miracles, that are following him. And this crowd was in the thousands, and even some had turned back, but it was still a large crowd. This is a cursed bunch of people. Then verse 50 of chapter 7. Nicodemus. Remember him? The one who'd come to Jesus by night. It's interesting that this probably took place at night because the Festival of Lights is taking place. And they are having their great party. And Nicodemus one more time speaks up. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, 
Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? Nicodemus makes a polite point of order. The point of order is you do not condemn a man without witnesses against him. But furthermore, and follow this, Nicodemus is saying you believe someone if there is testimony from two witnesses. And there's a reference here then, of course, to the book of Deuteronomy as well as other passages which talk about it's the mouth of two witnesses. In other words, there must be two who attest, who witness, who verify, who give testimony to something in order to make it true and authentic. That brings us then over to verse 13 where our passage is here. So the Pharisees said to him, You are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. In other words, your testimony is not valid because you're the only witness. Jesus is saying, I am God. I am the Savior of the world. I am the light. I am the bread. I I have given the water of life. He's making all of these claims. And they're bordering on claims to deity. They're moving closer and closer. In fact, the way I understand them, they're just flat out claims to deity. But, but he, he's moving more and more in this direction. And this, that's blasphemy. And this is a very Jewish crowd. This is in the shadow of the temple. And these are the highest officers in the land. And there's this, this confrontation. So they challenge the veracity of his testimony. You're giving witness yourself, but that's not valid testimony according to our law. And Jesus says, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. Jesus said, I may be one witness, but I'm a good witness. I'm a true witness. I'm a faithful. In fact, that's what John will call him in the book of Revelation, the true and faithful witness. That's the question, who is Jesus? The bread of life, the light of the world. He is the true and faithful witness. And listen to Jesus' appeal. For I know where I came from and where I am going. Jesus said, I know who I am. Jesus was God in the flesh. He knew He had but a scant few years earlier left the portals of glory. He had laid aside His divine majesty. He had robed Himself in flesh. He had come as a babe in the manger and had lived in the carpenter shop of Nazareth and grown up in Galilee and had commenced upon His ministry with an increasing self-awareness of who He was. In fact, it finally reached a point where He longed to be have that glory of His majesty, of His divine majesty, restored to Him in an obvious way when in the garden He prayed, let the glory which I had in Thee before the world was become manifested so my disciples at least can see it. His glory was revealed in bits and pieces, the Mount of Transfiguration and other places. We see the glory of God. His disciples were convinced of it. Many of the people were convinced of it. But he still had this nagging question following him. Who are you really? And that's really the tone of voice, I think, that was used in the question. Some of the best commentators say that this was a sarcastic and absolutely uh, a rude question in the way they ask it to Jesus. Who do you think you are? Making these claims to be the Son of God, to be fully God. These were a fiercely monotheistic people. 
one God. The Lord thy God is one. And here Jesus was claiming to be one with the Father. Claiming that if you've seen Him, you've seen the Father. Claiming to be the effulgence of God's glory. The light of the glory of God. And all these other claims. It's just all through the, the Gospels. And John just makes one after another. He says He's the life. He's the giver of life. He's the resurrection. He's the life. On and on and on. He's the true vile. Just everything that, that you can imagine. He says, I'm the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. He knows who He is and He is pleading to them to believe. But He who sent me is true and declare to the world that I have heard from Him. Now listen to Jesus uh, as He tries to present two witnesses. Himself and the Father. That's the only two witnesses Jesus has to his true identity. Nobody else understands who Jesus is, but he understands himself, who he is, and it's a faithful witness. And the Father knows who he is. The Father who sent him, the Father knows who Jesus is, and it's the Father that bears witness through not only the miracles and the power and the teachings of Christ, but in other ways. It's the Father who authenticates the ministry. Jesus has always shown and will continue to develop the thought in the next couple of chapters, the inextricable binding between Him and His Father. He does the Father's will. He does nothing but what the Father teaches Him to do or tells Him to do. He pleases the Father at all times. He and the Father are one. You believe in one God, you are a monotheist, then you're on firm foundation here, Jesus said. I'm a monotheist too. There's one God. Father, Son, and Spirit. And Jesus is teaching truth. Now, what analogy would He have to use to teach the Trinity? I insist there's none. I've heard a lot of pathetic ones in my life, and a lot of them from pulpits. You know, but there's no analogy to the triune God. And Jesus is trying to show them that He is authentically and truly God's Son. But like light, it has to be self-attesting, self-witnessing. The evidence is intrinsic and native to the person. And Jesus is insisting upon this. And he, he engages them in a little bit of conversation when He talks about His origins, where I've been in heaven. He talks about His destiny, where I am going. He says, where I go, you cannot, you'll continue to seek Me. And by the way, the Jews have continued to seek Messiah. And Jesus said, if you don't believe in Me, if you do not believe that I am He, I am He, then you will die in your sins. If you don't believe me, the one true God, if you don't believe me, the one way to God, if you don't believe me, the Son of the Father, the Son of God, if you don't believe the Father's witness to me, if you don't take my words as I give them to you, authentic truth, and you receive them with faith and trust, if you do not believe and seize upon them and act upon them, there's nothing left. And that's as I close. That's a little phrase I want to bring home by way of application. 
if you don't accept Jesus for who He is and who He says He is and hear the witnesses of the Father and the power upon His life and hear the witness of Jesus in the life He lived, you will, as He said, you will die in your sin. The word is singular here. A couple of sentences down, Jesus will use the plural. I'll mention that in just one minute. You will die in your sin. And the notion of dying in your sin is an Old Testament prophetic notion. And all the prophets had some sense of it, and you see it in the Psalms occasionally, but it's especially spelled out in the preaching of the prophet Ezekiel. Ezekiel talked about the soul that sins, it shall die. And he talks about bearing the iniquity and then dying in your sins. And eventually Ezekiel will ask the challenging question, Why will you die, O Israel? The light has come. The salvation of the Lord has come. Look to Him and live. Believe on Him. And the evangelist of the old covenant, preaching the new covenant, Ezekiel talks about this idea of dying in your sin. What sin? Single your sin. The sin of unbelief. The sin of not listening to the witnesses. Not listening to the testimony of the Father. Not listening to the testimony of the Son. Not observing the evidence. Not seeing the light. You'll die in that condition. And sadly, we don't tend to emphasize what we think of as kind of the negative preaching of Jesus and some of the difficult sayings of Jesus. But Jesus was a preacher of judgment. And he believed immensely in eternal death. And he believed in hell. And he knew it to be true. And he warned consistently, if you do not repent, you will also likewise perish. And so Jesus tells them that they will die in their sin of unbelief. If you keep seeking someone and never never come to Christ, then you, you will die in your sin. And then a couple of verses over down there, he said, you are from below. You look at things through fleshly eyes. You judge through fleshly eyes. I don't, he says. I have a divine perspective in my judgment, a divine perspective in my assessment. Literally is what that word means. It's not judgment in terms of a judicial sense. It's judgment in terms of assessment or discrimination or, or discernment. And Jesus said, you discern according to appearances. You just look at me and you see a man standing here, five foot eight or nine, you know, weighing a hundred and something pounds, you know, being a Jew from Galilee. That's all you can see. But I'm telling you, I am the Son of God. And he warns them, you're from below, I am from above. You're of this world, I am not of this world. Can't you see the gravity of the spiritual opportunity that you were about to miss in Jesus then I told you that you would die in your sins unless you believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. Plural. The particular sins that you've committed. In the Old Testament preaching of Ezekiel, that word is the word iniquity. And what it means, it means a little, it means twistedness warpedness, perverseness, crookedness. 
And I think we live in a generation that's going to die in their perversions. And I pray to God that it's no one in this room that we have seen the light of the world and believed in Him and received from Him that life that He gives as the light of life and that we are following in His footsteps. Thy Word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. And Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. That's what we need. That's what we must have. Otherwise, we die in our perversion.